The Gospel today opens up with a somewhat obscure prophecy from the prophet Isaiah, which we read in our first reading, about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, um, that the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light. Just to give you a little bit of background so that that prophecy makes some sense or we can understand the context, um, you may know that about 600 years before Christ, uh, there was this thing called the Babylonian exile where the Babylonians came to Jerusalem, the kingdom of Judah, which is the southern kingdom in Israel, and the capital, and sacked the whole city, destroyed the temple, and carried off most of the people into exile in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. This was like the biggest um, spiritual, cultural, social disaster in the history of Israel. Well, a few hundred years prior to that, uh, the northern ten Tribes. So the Israel is 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob. Um, 11 of them have land. Levi, the 12th, the priestly tribe, doesn't have a land inheritance. They, are, they get a tithe from all the other 11 uh, tribes. But the northern 10, Judah is the southern one, the northern 10 were exiled by the Assyrians, which is kind of north of, of Babylon. That was the power a couple hundred years prior to the Babylonian exile. They exiled the 10 tribes of the northern part of Israel, and they never returned. Unlike the Babylonian exiles, the, the Judites, the Jews, they came back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. The northern 10 tribes, like Zebulun and Naphtali and the rest of those tribes that you don't really hear that much about, they never returned. So the northern part of Israel, Galilee, where Jesus grew up, was Galilee of the Gentiles. It was just this dispersed kingdom, this ruined uh, promised land that the tribes never came back. Now, all of the mes- mes- messianic prophecies, the ones that said there's a Messiah coming, a Savior coming, one of his number one jobs to do was to reunite the 12 tribes, to bring Israel back together. And so that is what the gospel writers, especially Matthew, saw Jesus as doing, is calling back the 12 tribes. And he remembered this prophecy in Isaiah that Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles, you're by no means done, right? Even though death has overshadowed you, even though the kingdom appears to have evaporated, the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light. And what does Jesus do right after this? After he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, after John has been arrested and we know later on is killed uh, for his prophecy, for his witness, Jesus calls 12, he, first he calls these first four, but he ends up calling 12 friends, 12 apostles, who represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He calls them to himself and then sends them out into the world after his resurrection and ascension to call back not just the 12 tribes of Israel, but the whole world that Israel was meant to be a symbol of. They, they were God's people called back together. And so in a certain way, we can understand it this way. That all of these millennia of darkness, all these hundreds of years uh, since the, the tribes were, were um, destroyed and exiled, but even the thousands of years prior to that, that the people sat in darkness, the turning point is now. That Jesus, the light, has arisen. And that these four men, these fishermen who become fishers of men, are the turning point. This is the beginning of the new kingdom. I love that image, by the way. The people who sit in darkness have seen a great light. You could not be more depressing than sitting in the dark, 
right? And it's understandable, too, if you can't see, why get up? You might hit yourself on something, right? If you're sitting in a dark room, of course, the safest thing to do is to just sit there. That's what, the, what Isaiah and Matthew, through Isaiah, is saying that the people have been, the people of Israel, and each one of us in our own particular way, the Gentiles, we've been sitting here waiting for a light to dawn. And Christ is that light. And now, these verses are full of hope, right? That we don't need to sit anymore. We can get up and we can go. It means not just settling for the way things are. This is, this is hope. This is what Christian hope is. Is that we're not just going to sit here through our own fear or laziness or shame or boredom or sadness and just say, this is the way that things have always been and it's the way things always will be. No, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it starts today. The light has arisen and it doesn't have to be that way forever. Jesus' word, his first word of preaching, repent, in Greek, metanoiate, means not just change your ways, not just change your behavior, but change your mindset. It actually literally means get a new mind. Look at the world a totally different way. And this is what Jesus is inviting. And we, we look at, at the, the gospel where Jesus is inviting these four men. What he's inviting these four men into is that first metanoia. In a way, we can, we can see ourselves in all four of them. That drop their nets immediately at the word of Jesus. They see the great light in front of them, and they follow him. They see this value in front of them, this pearl of great price, this call, and they answer it. In a way that each word is important of what Jesus says. He says, I will make you fishers of men. Come after me and follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Now, I will make. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God, right? The Son is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is God. The Word of Christ is the Word of God. When he says, I will make you, he's the creator. Just the same creator as breathed breath into Adam and Eve He's making each and every one of us in every moment. And what he's saying to to Peter and Andrew is, I will make you fishers of men. I will give you something new to do. Not just a job, but I will create you. I will breathe new life into you. Make you into something new. And Peter and Andrew say, yes, I'll do it. I'll let myself be created or recreated. So philosophically, theologically, there's something important, important happening here because Jesus, God, in person, is the source of existence. To say no to Christ, if he comes to you at your job, wherever you are a fisher person, right? Whatever job you have, if Christ comes to you and says, come with me, I'm going to make you something else. I'm going to create you. I'm going to recreate you. You say no to him, nah. Is to say no to existence. Is to choose not to exist. It's suicide to say no to God. Because God is the source of all life. This could not be higher stakes. I remember myself when I was in college, first time someone invited me, I've said this before, invited me to ask the question, not what do you want to be when you grow up or what major do you want to choose, but what does God want you to be? Who does God want you to be? That question is so revolutionary. Not just because it's like a helpful discernment tactic or because it's like a Christian guilt way of getting you to do something a little bit more charitable and less selfish with your life. It's not that. It's life or death. Because God has chosen you for something. He's creating you here and now. And we can choose not to do it. 
we can say no to him. But to do that is to choose not to exist. It's to choose not to live a full life. And it could be because we prefer to sit in darkness. Right? To just because of our fear or laziness or lack of hope or like, no, this is just the way my life has always been. It's always been pretty meh. Or I've always been kind of oppressed by regret or resentment or anger or bitterness or sadness, self-reproach. I'm not good enough. Feelings of inadequacy. Like you haven't seen the great light yet that's held that promise in store for you that things could be different. It doesn't always have to be that way. And I guarantee you, you've probably met somebody who has seen the great light, who has seen the light of Christ in their own life and chosen to follow and now lives a fuller life because of it. Not perfectly, maybe, not yet a saint, but someone who's following the light, who's refusing now to sit in darkness. Follow that person. Ask them, what made you do that? Because the apostles, even these four men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, I'm sure they could have thought of a million excuses when Christ came to them on the shore of the sea. Oh gosh, how many excuses could you have thought of? Ah, oh, my boat, I just bought this boat. Right? Ah, oh, my family needs me, my mom, my dad, they, you know, they, they retired, now they need me to support them. A million good reasons not to leave behind their life of fishermen and to follow Jesus. Remember, I, heard, I read a story once of a guy... Uh, he had this total conversion moment in his life. He was really, really into his work. He was working for a software company in Silicon Valley. He was, you know, one of these guys that's just like 80-hour, 100-hour work weeks. And his wife was having a baby. It was their first daughter. And he went to the hospital, and he, he had made an, a, a meeting on Friday uh, with a client, like a big client. And his, his partner in business said, your, your wife better not have a baby on Friday because that's an important meeting. Well, she had the baby on Thursday, and he thought, oh, good, I can go be in the hospital with my wife and my new daughter and then Friday leave like, and go work the day after his baby was born. And he thought he was going to really impress this client that, man, you, you chose me over your family. <laughs> and he gets to the meeting and, and uh, the client's like, oh, how things going? He's like, oh, my wife just had a baby yesterday. And the client goes, why are you here? And it was just like that. He had this, he had this epiphany. That, like, this isn't a good trade. This is a fool's bargain. This is a stupid way of living your life to choose these lesser goods over higher goods. But it's so easy as a human being to do that, to find some excuse not to put first things first. Well, thank God, Peter and Andrew and James and John and the rest of the apostles and all of the Christians down through history who have met Christ, have seen the great light, have not made excuses. I've not said, "Mm, I have some other important thing to do when the most important thing is right in front of you, to choose life, to choose to live, to choose to be made into who you're meant to be. And so our task today, as we see this great light or fail to see it, but try to look for it in maybe others or or in sources of, of light and hope in our lives, is to not make excuses, but to follow and to live.